What is your purpose? What is your call? Learning to listen to God's voice and follow it. We're very privileged to have Father Matt Spar. He's a priest here in the Diocese of San Diego and was born and raised here. He attended local Catholic schools, including USD and the North American College in Rome. He was ordained in 1992 and is currently the director of Office for Priestly Formation for the Diocese and the pastor of the Immaculata Parish on the campus of USD. So we're very fortunate. He is, and I probably shouldn't be put on the record for saying this, but he's one of the best preachers I've ever heard. And I've heard a lot of priests in my time working for the diocese. So, um, and I've been asking him yearly, pretty much on Mondays, and that's his day is off. So he's like, can't do it, Carrie, can't do it, Carrie. So finally, he said yes on a Tuesday, and I'm so excited. You're going to love Father Matt Spar. Thank you. It's great to be here on a Tuesday. And we should, uh, I want to make sure you understood that Carrie said this is the first of a four-part series, but you understand that in case I'm really bad, I'm just this part. So don't, don't think that I'm coming all four times. So uh, I want the, the poor other speakers not to be um, put off by what I do. Anyway, um, I want to begin with a little prayer uh, that is almost the topic. It's kind of like the topic of our talk, but um, very pithy uh, by St. Ignatius of Loyola because I want to talk a little bit about St. Ignatius as we start. So let us pray. May it please the supreme and divine goodness to give us all abundant grace ever to know his most holy will and perfectly to fulfill it. We ask this through Christ our Lord. So that's a short prayer, but very pithy. And I think for so many of us, that kind of captures it. I think most of us really do want to know God's will. We have a desire to do God's will. For many of us, the problem is we just don't know what God's will is. We, sometimes our prayer is, tell me what you want and I'll do it. Or sometimes it's we might think we know what we want, but we don't have, we might be afraid to do it. But at any rate, those two things are, you know, it's kind of a life's, uh, talk about purpose, to know God's will and to do it. Uh, you might have heard that I am the director of priestly formation for our diocese. So I want to say right off, off this, the, the top that we're going to talk about vocation tonight, but I am not here to give a vocation talk. I'm not here to recruit for the seminary. But in my role as the director of priestly formation, I work with lots of people who are discerning God's will and trying to understand God's will in their life. Many of those people, many of those men do not become priests, but certainly the experience that I've had working with them has helped me reflect more deeply on what it means to come to know God's will and how that process works and then, of course, uh, the courage to do that. But I want to talk a little bit before, kind of a little preamble, 
about St. Ignatius of Loyola. How many people are familiar with St. Ignatius of Loyola? Okay, good. How many people went to a Jesuit school? If you were, you probably wouldn't be at a Catholic function. I'm only kidding. I went to a Jesuit school. Ignatius of Loyola was the founder of the Jesuit order, and we just celebrated his feast day on July 31st. And Ignatius uh, was given a great genius into the idea of discernment, into what it means to discern God's will. He really is the master of that. And I want to talk a little bit about his life and what he, I'm going to be very simple, but what he kind of came up with in terms of how we look for God's will. Ignatius uh, lived primarily in the 16th century. Uh, that's uh, during the period right after the Reformation and then what we call the Counter-Reformation. He was, as so many of the saints of that era, born to nobility. He was well-educated. And as many, he was born in the Basque region of Spain. And as many nobles did in that day, he did a lot of fighting back and forth. He was a soldier, kind of a knight. Uh, you know, have you ever heard the stories of St. Francis? You know that St. Francis was a soldier too. And, and, and we have these ideas, these great wars. But, but really, you know, if you've ever been to Assisi where Francis was, you know, he was caught and held prisoner by Perugia. And you think, oh gosh, it was... He was fighting it. Well, Perugia is the next town over. They just went down the hill of Assisi and up the hill to Perugia and fought there, and then they'd come down Perugia and up Assisi. These were kind of low-level skirmishes. But anyway, that's a little bit the way Ignatius was in Spain. And he was injured in battle, had a very serious leg injury. And um, that experience changed his life. One thing we know about him from that is that he was very vain. He, his leg was broken. It was broken in such a way that it was disfigured so that it, it wasn't set properly. It was very crooked. And because he was a knight and a nobleman, he knew that his leg was never going to look good again in those tights they wore. You know, the little short skirts and tights. I don't know what those things are called. So he had his leg rebroken. No anesthesia, remember, 16th century. But for the sake of vanity and looking good in those little tight things, he had his leg rebroken. So that's a little bit of who Ignatius was before his conversion. When he was convalescing, he was in a place that had only two kinds of books. And those, those books were kind of knight's tales, stories of chivalry, battle, um, maybe, you know, romantic exploits and Lives of the Saints. Those were the two kinds of books that were there. And Ignatius, of course, this was a low point in his life. He, all he had to do was read, so he read. And he read those two kinds of books. And he noticed, he started to notice his reaction to the books. He started to notice what would happen to him inside when he was reading the books. And he noticed that when he read the tales of knights, their exploits in war and love and all of that, he would get really excited about that. He, he really enjoyed reading those. But when he was done, he was left feeling kind of empty inside, kind of dry, kind of bored, what he would have called desolate. 
When he read the lives of the saints, he enjoyed them, not initially to the same, they weren't as exciting for him as reading those other tales, but he noticed that when he was finished reading them, he was left with a great and enduring kind of peace and a joy, what he would call later consolation. And he started paying attention to this and to reflecting on his life and reflecting on what God was doing in his life. And he came up with a tremendous theory of discernment and how God works in us. And what he, uh, this is going to be a very big oversimplification, but the basic principle Ignatius learned was that for those who are in a state of grace, those who are oriented towards God, God's will is going to be known First, with the, the spirit, he, he would call them the spirits in us. What he meant by that was our moods, our inclinations, our feelings. He said, those spirits, when, when, when we are headed towards God, when we're doing something in accord with God's will, those spirits are going to bring us peace, joy, again, what he would say, consolation, life. And conversely, when we are doing something contrary to God's will or heading in a direction that is not God's will, we're going to feel anxiety, boredom, dryness, what he would call desolation. That's first of all, right off the bat, something that's a real part of the good news, huh? that when we're, when we're acting in accord with God and God's will, God's spirit is bringing us joy. Huh? I don't think we always think of that. I think we, we think sometimes that to do God's will is going to be, it could be tough, could be difficult, could be sacrificial, but it's also going to be joyful. It's also going to bring peace. It's also going to bring consolation, or it's not God's will. I think that's a piece of the good news. Interestingly enough, the way this works, the opposite is true for those who are not in a state of grace. So for those who are away from God, estranged from God, for them to move back towards God is going to be frightening, is going to produce some anxiety, is going to be disturbing to them. Huh? It's going to take them out of their comfort zone. Whereas to stay where they are, to continue in a sinful path, a path away from God, will feel good to them. That will feel comfortable, peaceful, etc. So that's just... We kind of keep though, that basic principle in mind as we, as we go through the talk tonight. And I want to talk about what we've known in the church we call a vocation crisis. When we hear that, most people assume that we're talking about the lack of religious vocations, priests or nuns. But, you know, we really have to rethink that because, because that really is just a limited part of what is a vocation crisis in the church. Given the sobering statistics about marriage, not just in society in general, but in among Catholic couples, those married in the church, half make it, half don't. And given the, the, the tremendous uh, cultural debate about the very definition of marriage, we really have to say all vocation is in crisis. We don't have to have a crisis of religious vocations. Vocation is in crisis. And it truly is a crisis of vocation from the Latin vocare, call. We are in a crisis in our ability to hear 
and to respond to the call of God in our lives. Now remember, vocation doesn't have to necessarily mean A, becoming a nun or a priest, B, getting married, C, living the single life. Vocation, call, how God calls us all the time. Every day God is calling us. How are we growing in our sensitivity to hear that, to recognize that, to know where God is calling us? I think it's worth noting, too, that this vocation crisis is not God's crisis. What we, sometimes we project, well, I think a lot of times we project onto God. You know, we're having a crisis, and we, we imagine God is up there having a crisis, not knowing what to do. God is not having a crisis. We may be having a crisis. God continues to do what God has always, always done. Call every human person to relationship with him, to receive Christ and to bear Christ to the world through lives of love and service. God is not in crisis. And so the crisis is our own and our ability to hear God's call and to act on it. And so that brings us to the topic at hand. How does one listen to God's voice in order to discern his will? And I want to try to answer that question this evening in two parts. And the first part is to look at some, what I believe, are some pervasive obstacles that are part of our culture today. So some real blocks to hearing God's call. Uh, we, we have to recognize that this, this culture, our culture, is not vocation friendly. And so these affect not just priesthood and religious life, but also Christian marriage and a chaste single life. And I think it's good for us at times to be able to name some of these things, name spirits that are contrary to the gospel. We, we live in a culture's Bishop Brahm has a line, he says it all the time, what do cultures do? Inculturate. That's their job. That's, that's not good or bad, that's just what cultures do. What should Catholic culture do? Inculturate. What does popular culture do? Inculturate. It sucks us in, huh? And it's so pervasive. It's around us all the time. So if we're not going to be inculturated into some uh, uh, values, spirits that are contrary to the gospel, we better learn to recognize them and to name them. We don't have to be sucked wholeheartedly into the culture. There's a lot of good things about our culture. It's not all bad, but it's not all good either. And it's good to look at that and it's look to, to critique culture, to name some things for ourselves. So I want to look at those obstacles. Then I want to look at some tools for discernment. So if we're able to clear away some of those obstacles, then what are some tools that we can use to begin to tend to God's call? So is that okay? Two parts. Okay, first, obstacles to discernment. And the first of those is, uh, again, a kind of pervasive idea in our culture of the need, very American, by the way, to chart one's own life course. This comes from the frontier, huh? We're very independent. Got to be chart our course, find our way. 
Our culture, our society has become obviously much more complex and competitive. Career paths as a result seem to start earlier and earlier. I have to in this way, you know, think about the Olympics, every little up close and personal thing they do, they, you know, this little Susie Q and Joey here, when, when, did, when did you start doing the balance beam? I was about one and a half. <laughs> Holy moly, I'd be good at the balance beam if I'd started at one and a half. But that's echoed, that's really amazingly, that is often true in terms of career paths for children. I was watching a television show and it was some parents being interviewed about uh, what it took, the competition that is there and what it takes to get a child into a really top elite university today. And the point of the program was showing that some parents believe, at least, that they have to begin scripting their children in kindergarten. So they are scripting them already in kindergarten about what they will study, the schools they'll attend, the extracurriculars that they will do in order to be at the best competitive edge to get into the top schools, right? So it's this idea of charting my course from a very early age. I don't mean to imply that all, I mean, of course you have to have some idea what you want to do in life, but, but just bear with me. So there's tremendous pressure to do the right things, to get into the right schools, to get the best jobs, to be successful based on what our society says is success. And I believe that drive, un understandable as it is, is however a barrier, an obstacle to true Christian vocation. And why is that? Because vocation is a call. The initiative is God's. At what point in our lives do we ask for and reflect on God's sense, God's idea of who we are, who we were created to be, what our purpose in life is? And so often this drive doesn't leave room for that in people's lives. And again, that doesn't necessarily have to be in big vocations, it can be even in the little decisions we have to make or the medium decisions we have to make. Are we allowing God in to help us in those decisions? So, so often today, even for some very faithful, sincere folks, vocational discernment looks a lot more like presenting God with a business plan and asking Him to buy in. <laughs> Here's what I've come up with. What do you think? Like it? And we keep, you know, come on, get on board. And that is an obstacle to Christian vocation. Matthew Kelly, I'm sure many of you are, are familiar with Matthew Kelly, the lay Catholic evangelist from Australia. He's fun to listen to no matter what he's saying. He's got that great accent. And he says, even how we speak to children kind of belies this attitude. We, we say, it's not wrong to say this. Uh, what do you want to do when you grow up? That's fine. Even Ignatius would say, well, our passions are a part of how God is guiding us. But we never say anything like, what do you sense God is calling you to do with your life? But until I see my life as the response to a call from God, I am not probably going to discern my vocation nor, even more importantly, 
have the perseverance to live it out after I've made the commitment, right? There's a big difference between living out a vocation as a response to God's call, and so I will persevere and doing this because this is what I cooked up and I don't want to do this anymore, right? Makes a big, big difference. Now there's a corollary to this trend, I think, and that is even if we've even if we're there, when do we have time in this competitive age, in this driven age, to listen to what God is saying? Right? I love kids today little even little kids i mean there is never a time they don't have something stuck in their ears right i love looking at those uh airplane shopping magazines because they've always you can you can get something to play music at any phase in your day so you can wake up to music and then when you're in the shower you can listen to music and then you got cnn going or fox or whatever you're listening to and then you pop out the door and you're listening to something in the car and then the, the head you work out and you've got head what, what when when is god going to get in there there needs to be some moment huh some moments of silence we are not going to hear god's call if we've always got earbuds in our ears and sometimes i think we are literally entertaining ourselves to death you know, Matthew Kelly has a great line there. He says, half the world is starving to death and half the world is eating to death. It's true. And I would say our half of the world is also entertaining ourselves to death, a spiritual death at least. And not, not entertainment's good. We need to be able to do that. Every so often I will find uh, a movie I want to watch on the Spike channel. Be <laughs> Very rarely, but every so often. And because sometimes you just need to watch something blow up. <laughs> but every time I fall into that trap, I despair of our culture. Because the advertisements on the Spike channel, if those are representative of the concerns of men today, we are in deep trouble. And I think, really, the ad ads there are probably geared towards 14-year-old boys. But if you've ever seen it, you know, it's, it's video, you know, violent video game after violent video game after whatever that wrestling, boxing, kicking, killing thing is that people do. And, you know, I mean, liter literally, we are entertaining ourselves to death. And so not only then do we have to come to the realization that a call is being made, but also to have the time and space to hear that still, quiet voice within us. To tend to, Ignatius would say, the spirits that are moving us. How many of us are even self-aware enough to know what we feel in a given day? To look back on a day and to be able, as Ignatius recommended every day, to look back on a day and to say, where was grace at work in my life today and how did I feel as a result? How did I respond to that grace? Did I respond to it? Where were there times I rejected God's grace and how did I feel as a result? And only that kind of daily sensitivity is able to help us to grow in our ability to hear God. 
Bishop Brom again, one of his best quotes, if we are too busy to pray, we are busier than God wants us to be. You can be sure of that. If you are too busy to pray, you are busier than God wants you to be. So a second cultural trait that I think becomes an obstacle to realizing our Christian vocation, to knowing our purpose, to fulfilling our purpose, is the idea pervasive throughout our culture that the goal of life is self-what? Fulfillment, huh? The goal, goal of life is self-fulfillment, right? Right? I mean, we kind of think that's true, even us. It seems okay. We take it almost for granted culturally. It's in everything. But do, we don't have to be exposed to the gospel very long, do we, before we know something is wrong with the idea of self-fulfillment. I don't know any place. I do not know any place in the gospel where self-fulfillment is the goal. I know lots of places in the gospel where self-donation, self-gift is the goal. I know lots of places in the gospel where self-denial is the goal. There's something very incongruous, it seems to me, about those of us who wear crucifixes. Think about it for a minute. We wear crucifixes around our necks and think that self-fulfillment is the goal of life. At least that wasn't the refrain of that ancient Christian hymn that we hear in the letter to the Philippians. Have the same attitude in you that is also in Christ. Though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He emptied himself so that God might fill him. I think this explains one of the reasons that we have seen in priesthood, at least, a kind of uptick in what we would call delayed vocations. Why? Because when the business plan fails, when we realize that the culture was wrong about what fulfills us, then we're ready to listen to God's call. And this is as important for marriage as it is for religious life. Because the goal of marriage, Christian marriage, is not self-fulfillment. It is self-gift to spouse, children, and the church. But that is not the cultural message, is it? It's all about the feeling of love, except that love is not a feeling. Sometimes love feels good, and sometimes it's no fun at all. I always know I'm in for a long haul in marriage preparation where a couple comes in and sits down at the first meeting, starry-eyed, which they should be, 
no com no criticism there and one or the other will say something like father i finally found the one right one i think oh god <laughs> 10 billion people on the planet and this knucklehead thinks he's found the one right one now i know that sounds cynical but but bear with me for a minute. I hope everyone feels like their sweetie is the one right one. <laughs> but the problem with really believing that, really believing that there's only one person on the planet that you could be married to, is it turns life into a romantic comedy. Every romantic comedy has the same plot. I won't go into it, you know. But it turns relationships into magic. Here's what happens. What's really being said is that because I found the one right one out of the 10 billion, well, I guess you'd only have half of that, 5 billion choices. <laughs> because I found the one right one, everything's going to be okay. <laughs> We're going to be in the 50% that make it because I found the one right one. There she is. But you know the inevitable will happen, the magic will be muted, and suddenly the work of relationship begins. And if we have subscribed to the one right one theory, then there can be only one explanation. She wasn't the one right one after all. I've got to start looking again because the goal of life is self-fulfillment, and I'm not feeling fulfilled. So she must not be the one right one. But if this is a Christian vocation, it is not about self-fulfillment. It is about self-gift. And like any worthwhile, Christ uh, successful endeavor, any human endeavor, relationships don't happen by magic or luck. They happen through skill and work. If I'm lacking healthy relationship skills, intimacy skills, if I'm lacking good communication skills, it doesn't matter who comes along or how right they are. I have to work to gain those skills. And this in itself is a mode and a tool to, to discerning our, our um, vocation in life. If I'm now lacking in those skills, and I know that I am, then that's where I should be putting my energy to work on those skills. And I need to sweat to use them. May, many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with Father Ron Rollheiser. Father Ron Rollheiser says, nobody will ever be faithful to a vocation to any commitment without sweating blood in a garden. No one will be faithful to a Christian vocation without sweating blood in a garden, even if she's the one right one. And so we have to be aware that our culture conspires against true Christian vocation. The goal of voc Christian vocation is not self-fulfillment or pleasure. And anyone would be naive to think that they could choose a Christian vocation that did not involve the cross.
And I see that in so many couples in marriage or the confessional. At times, any priest can think, you know, priest, oh gosh, this is kind of tough. I wish I was married. But the truth is, remember the bishop, I sorry to keep quoting Bishop Brown, but you know, he has a, another line about his pastoral staff, his crozier. You know how it has a hook on it. He always, he always says, you know why it has a hook on it? Because nobody's off the hook. <laughs> nobody's off the hook. And that's true about vocation. Nobody's off the hook. There is no easy vocation. There's no vocation without the cross. Relationships are difficult. A third obstacle to living Christian vocation is simply a lie. It's simply a lie that our culture tells us. And it's the myth that we cannot be happy or fulfilled if we are not in a sexual relationship. And I know you think I'm going towards priesthood on this, but I'm not. When I entered the seminary, I worked in a, uh, in the summer times, I worked in a warehouse. And when I entered the seminary, the guys that worked with me <laughs> used to say, you know, I said, so I'm, yeah, I'm driving my forklift. I say, I'm going to go in the seminary. And, <laughs> and they'd say, wow, how can you do that? And what they meant was, because all of them were living very promiscuous lifestyles, how, how can you refrain? How can you refrain from living a promiscuous life? Having sex. Not in, I mean, anywhere, with anyone. But of course, in the Christian life, that is not an option, is it? Celibate chastity is not to be opposed to promiscuity. If I weren't a celibate priest, I hope I would not be a sexually promiscuous man, but rather a chaste Christian man, which means I would not be having sex with someone I wasn't married to. Of course, there's no support, no support whatsoever for that in our culture. But the church's wisdom is absolutely correct. We are not disembodied spirits. What happens in our bodies touches our whole person. Sexual intimacy, as you know, literally changes the chemistry of our bodies. The same chemicals that are released that bond a mother to a newborn are released. When that occurs before marriage, it can become a block to the development of a healthy, deep friendship that is so necessary for marriage. And this is all the more true the younger it begins. When someone learns that the highest form of relating to another is genital, then what will that mean for the development of a truly rich and effective intimacy skill? And oftentimes, as we know, sex becomes the only bonding means. We have conflict. We can't talk about it, so we'll have sex. And that works for a while, but it doesn't work for a lifetime. And I have to tell you, as a confessor and in pastoral counseling, I have come to believe that what our culture teaches, exactly the opposite is wrong. Our culture says, unless you're having sex, you can't be happy. You just can't be. I mean, some of you probably have friends at work and wherever who, 
who believe that. But I would say our failures to live chastely are responsible for unimagined pain and suffering for us and others. And again, I don't mention this with regard to priesthood. I mention it with regard to marriage, both in uh, a promiscuous life, as we know, damages marriage, both in the healthy development of relationships and the basic truth that if you cannot be reasonably happy alone, no relationship is going to make you so. One of the major reasons that marriage is in crisis is our lost sense of chastity. One of the things that we teach the men in formation, we pound into their heads. Do you want to know if God's calling you to priesthood? Then live this life. If we talk about Ignatius, how, how could a man know whether he was called to be a priest, called to live celibate, priestly celibacy, to love in that way? How could he know that if he didn't start to live it? And then see what spirits, as Ignatius would say, are alive in him. Is he finding peace? Is he finding joy? Or is he being crushed by this? Unless he lives it, he'll never know. And the same is true for those who are discerning marriage. We know that many couples who are cohabitating today, many couples, I'd say about 70% of the couples who come to me for marriage preparation. And many believe that this is going to help them prepare for marriage. Many Many parents I, I find today, you know, always first things, oh, you're, oh, so you're living together. Thank you for being honest. Uh, what, what, you know, it's all say, well, what do your parents think about that? Oh, they're fine with it. They, they say it's the best way to figure out whether you're compatible. <laughs> but cohabitation is not a good preparation for marriage. And even secular, non-religious studies consistently demonstrate those who have lived together have a lower success rate in marriage. And that should not be a mystery to us. Why is that not a mystery? The very same thing we are doing in cohabitation, which is holding back by default. I'm holding back to see that is the exact opposite movement needed to be in marriage, which is to give my all and to give it unconditionally, self-gift. Chastity which involves what? Self-sacrifice, self-denial is the best preparation for marriage. We are being sold a lie. The bottom line is where and how am I giving my life away? You'll never discern your vocation unless you pr are prepared to give your life away. You'll never discern anything about life unless you're prepared to give your life away. Do you know how I love, I love the expression, I have no life. Do you know how sometimes I hear this, I love hearing this from young couples who have had their first child or their first couple children. And you know, they are, now they're like really learning, like, whoa, what all this was about. And, and sometimes they will simply, they will say, and it's kind of, it's cute, isn't it? But they'll say, I have no life. And they say it with a funny mix. I want to point out, they have a funny mix, and I would call it a gospel mix. They have a gospel mix of consternation and joy. And I think to myself, 
yes, yes, now you're living your vocation. I have no life. In fact, they found their real life. They have found their real life. Because even deeper than all of this cultural stuff is this yearning to give ourselves away. We want to give ourselves away. We were made to give ourselves away. And when we start finally giving our, I don't mean to say it's easy, I don't mean to say it's pleasurable, but there's a joy in it. Or even priests, the same thing. You know, if you ever get a bunch of priests together, we are big complainers. I mean, big complainers. We try to top ourselves about how busy we are. Oh, I had five masses Sunday. Oh, I had four funerals last week. Oh, I had to go do theology on tap on my day off. But Archbishop Vlasny of, of, the, uh, of the Diocese of Portland has a, a wonderful line as well. He says to priests, if you give your life to the church, don't be surprised when she takes it. Huh? And sometimes I think that's true. When, we can do it, when you give your life in marriage, don't be surprised when your spouse starts taking it or your children start taking it. That's the point. I have no life. No, you have found your life. God is calling us to give our lives away in love. Vocation is not about charting our own course. It's not about self-fulfillment. It's not about entertainment. It's not even in marriage primarily about finding a sexual partner. So obstacles and a few discernments and quickly some discernment tools. First one, I think sometimes we doubt this, to recognize that God is calling, God is calling. Remember, God's not in crisis. God is always calling, and God is calling you to something, to give your life away in a way nobody else can do that will bring you a joy that nobody, no, you could not cook up for yourself in any other way because it corresponds to your deepest desire. What would Ignatius say ultimately about your vocation? Why do we pay attention to those discernment, those, those spirits? Because God, your vocation, God has placed in your deepest desire. He is not a torturer. Sometimes I think we think that. Rather than presenting God a business plan, ask him to help us write it. And it is not a mystery. So then I think, oh, I'll never figure it out. Why would God, why would God not want to help you figure out your vocation? I mean, you're a notable group here. If we, I was thinking coming here, I thought, oh God, is this thing going to be in the bar at Phil's Barbecue? I thought, it can't be out in that main plot. So I thought, I was really kind of prepared that I was going to be in the bar, you know, and I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to have hecklers, you know. Uh, you know, I, I shut up! That's stupid. <laughs> but I mean, think about it. you are pretty, pretty unusual in in the general population. You want to know God. You want to be in relationship with God. You care about what God's will is. Why? Why would He not want you to know that? 
But sometimes I think, with, oh, well, God, I hope I, it's like a national treasure going through all these things to find my vocation. God wants you to know. Secondly, I already touched on it. How could you, how could you do this? Now, again, not necessarily on big, not just on the big vocational decisions, but on daily things about we're having, we're having trouble in our life. We're having trouble in a relationship. Something's not going right at work. We want God's input on that. Well, you've got to listen. You have to have some time to listen. There's got to be some quiet. Um, sometimes we, think, we make things too complicated in the spiritual life. I'm a big believer that we should ask for the grace we want. If we got up each day and asked God to show if that's our issue, I want to know what my vocation is, ask God. That, that's... One, that's in a class of prayers I'd say that God has to kind of answer, right? There's a lot of prayers. A lot of prayers, you know, you could ask. It's like, hmm, that's doubtful. I want a Ferrari. <laughs> you might get a Ferrari. But, I mean, to ask to be holy, to ask to grow as a chaste person, to ask to be a good husband or wife, to ask to be a good mother or father, to ask to know God's will. I mean, hello? God, God wants those things too. But it's important for us to speak it. And then we do that in the context of the church. Marriage, priesthood, the single life are lived in and for the church. Again, it makes no sense. It makes no sense to be discerning those and not be a part of the church's life and to avail ourselves of the sacraments. Practice your faith. It's not, not, missed, not a big mystery. God has a plan. God is calling. God wants you to know his call. Give time to that. Avail yourself of the sacraments. And then here, back to Ignatius, tend to the spirits in you. Tend to your passions and desires. Our God is beautiful, loving, and good. He is not calling us to something that will torture us. Can we believe enough in God's love and goodness to recognize that your vocation corresponds to the deepest desire of your heart? We have lots of desires. So that doesn't mean, I mean, again, now I do have to say this, doesn't mean that if you want to be married and have a family, then you're automatically not called the religious life. Well, of course, I mean, most healthy people want to have marriage and a family. That, but it's about the deepest desire. What is the deepest desire in us? Um, okay, I know we're, we're going over. So I'll just, so summary. Clear away obstacles. There are, there are a lot, our culture does not support discernment of God's call. Again, big calls, little calls, any calls. Clear away those obstacles and, and then make time, very simply, make time for God. Know that God is calling. God wants you to know. Make the time for it. Live the sacraments and then tend to the spirits on a daily basis. A daily What is happening in me? Ignatius would say we should all end our day by looking back on the day. It's one, a great way to grow in, in sensitivity and discernment. What happened today? Five minutes. 
What happened today? What were the moments that stood out that were grace-filled? Where was God offering me grace? Where did I accept that? Where were there times where I rejected it? How did I feel? Where were there times of sin today? Why? How did I feel? See how that starts to make us sensitive to the movement of the Spirit in us. And if we can do it in the small things, we can do it in the big things. Some of you are from St. Bridget's. I know if you, you, may, you may or may not have known Monsignor Sean Murray just passed away, wonderful priest. At his 50th anniversary, he said, he said, priesthood was God's way for me to be happy. That's a beautiful sentiment, huh? And it's true for all of us. Your vocation is God's way for you to be happy if you are prepared to give your life away. Thank you.